else. Now to set up our, our guest speaker here today, um, I gotta let you know about something that's happening this Tuesday, very special day, Tuesday. Dave Hall, what happens Tuesday for you and me? We came to Christ. It's our spiritual birthdays. And Dave, a couple years before me, 35 years this Tuesday. For me, 33 years this Tuesday is my spiritual birthday from when I accepted Christ. When I accepted Christ, I was 17 years old. I'd grown up in a very, um, you know, not a Christian family, but an intellectual family. And I had a lot of questions and, and a lot of curiosity about how to develop a Christian worldview. Uh, over much of the 80s, I read a lot of authors that seemed to come from a similar place uh, called Labrie, guys like Francis Schaeffer and, and McCulley and Bars and other guys that had been a part of a think tank for years during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and, and such and had written a lot about how to think Christianly uh, and how to think biblically. Uh, one of the guys that I read also at that time was a guy by the name of Dr. Oz Guinness. Uh, Oz just writes in such a wonderful style. He's got an earned doctorate from Oxford, uh, so he's, he's just very, very bright, uh, but also a real tender heart and a heart for American culture, for world culture, and he's written a lot of books, over 30 different books. When I was in Europe a few years ago with the European Leadership Forum, I got the privilege to have a meal with Oz, and, and he's the real deal. He is uh, what he is in his writings when you're with him in person. And he's really easy to listen to because he's got a British accent. And so I liked listening to him talk as well. I asked him a couple years ago if he'd consider coming to our church to address us and speak. And he said he would. And so we're really blessed today to have Dr. Oz Guinness. He's married to Jenny. They have one son. They live over in McLean, Virginia. Oz is considered probably one of the foremost Christian apologists alive today. Also considers himself kind of a, a critic of culture to help us understand the culture around us uh, from a biblical worldview. Uh, more, most importantly, I consider Oz a friend. I, I consider him a brother in the Lord and one capable to address us today. So why don't we give a hearty Scottsdale Bible welcome to Dr. Oz Guinness. Thank you, Jamie. It's an enormous pleasure to be here. Don't take the English accent seriously for a minute. I was once speaking with Tony Campolo on the same platform, and he got up at the end and he said, this man with his English accent speaks for 20 minutes before you realize he's not saying anything. <laughs> with my Philadelphia accent, he said, I have to speak for 20 minutes before you realize I am saying something. <laughs> so don't be confused by that. You have Neil's Scottish accent, which is, <laughs> maybe that's for Presbyterians, though. <laughs> Let's turn to the Lord before we open the word. Lord, open your word to our hearts, and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I was at Stanford, and a student asked me a question I'd never been asked before. If you could be a member of any generation except the one you're born in, which would you choose? I had no idea what was behind the question, and all sorts of answers flashed through my mind from the Chinese I was brought up there to the Greece of Pericles and 
Rome of the Empress Trajan and Hadrian, England of William Pitt and William Wilberforce, the US in the founding generation, all sorts of possible answers flashed through my mind. But what came to me really was, I'd like to be a member of your generation. Because those who are now rising to their adulthood are described as the crunch generation. If you look globally, we're seeing a huge convergence of issues, economic, technological, environmental, nuclear, you name it, which will have to be answered well if humanity is to sail forward calmly. And if they're not answered well, or there's just drift and no answer, humanity is in trouble. But if you shift from the global, where we're into a new, new world, as it were, to the American scene, you can also see it's a crunch generation. Because the world, as most Americans have known until very recently, has gone. And there are issues rising in this generation, which if not resolved, will lead inevitably to the decline of America, a crunch generation. There's a lot of talk recently about why so many, particularly the so-called millennials, are leaving the church. And what strikes me reading a lot of the polls and the rationales for it is how flimsy the reasons are. Surely they were not the reasons why people came to put their faith in Christ. And yet for all sorts of relatively trivial things, the failures of Christians and so on, they're now leaving the faith in some areas in droves. But it raises the question, when we in our lives hit the fan in some area or other, what is it that we really trust in that's an absolute bedrock conviction which will be unshakable? I want you to think with me of one of the great crisis prayers in the Scriptures. I would argue that it's the most daring prayer in the Scripture, and probably also the most mysterious prayer in the Scripture. Moses, called to lead God's people, when he's given the Ten Commandments and they break out in a pagan rebellion, the Lord says to him, he's going to destroy them all and start again with Moses. And that prayer, show me your glory, comes at the climax of this long argument of Moses with the Lord. I said it was mysterious. I don't know what was in his heart. I have no idea what Moses experienced when the Lord answered that prayer, and it said that the Lord pronounced his name aloud in his presence, and he saw not his face, but his back. But let me have a crack in three ways of trying to get into that extraordinary prayer and see if we have something out of that for our world today. First, you can see in that prayer how Moses trumps his predecessors. Moses has an unrivaled standing with the Jewish people. There's no one like Moses. But you see how he starts. He's a hesitant speaker, and he's a very reluctant leader. But by the end of the story, the hesitant speaker is pouring out words, and there are more words of Moses in the Scriptures than any other person, including our Lord. The reluctant leader who didn't want to lead ends up, in effect, as the liberator, like a George Washington, as a lawgiver, 
like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and as a leader in their greatest crises, like an FDR. But he's not praised at the end of his life for any of those things. The tribute he's given is, there has never arisen anyone in Israel like Moses who knows the Lord face to face. And in this three chapters, you see the climax of it. First, you see how every day he goes out to the so-called tent of meeting. And when he meets the Lord face to face in that tent, he comes out and his face shines so much like our Lord in the transfiguration that he has to put a veil over his face. He's so dazzling. But the heart of it is when he asks himself to see the glory of the Lord. Now, we know Enoch walked with the Lord in an extraordinary way. He walked to the Lord and somehow he just disappeared. He was so intimate with the Lord, somehow he was taken into the Lord's presence and so those left behind, he just vanished. Or Abraham was so close to the Lord, he's described by the Lord as his friend. And he prays, say for Sodom and Gomorrah, but stop short and Sodom and Gomorrah are not saved. But Moses knows the Lord like that, and he has this rabble people at his heels, not exactly a quiet walking like Enoch or like Abraham. You can see in this chapter where Moses trumps all his predecessors in the level of intimacy with which he knows the Lord. Maybe another way into it is this, and I hope I'm saying this reverently. You can see in this chapter how Moses turns the tables on the Lord. What do I mean? You can see the way that Moses was chosen and called. The Lord tracks him down and corners him. And Moses, rather like a boxer, forced into the ring, ducks and weaves and bobs and comes out again. He does not want to lead them. Now, as we know, Moses comes into the story after he'd grown up as the man who thought he was somebody. Who was the most natural person to lead the people out of slavery? Born a Jew, raised an Egyptian, the Egyptian prince. Tradition tells us he was intelligent, handsome, and all sorts of good things. And so he sets out to do it himself. And you remember after he'd killed one of the oppressors, one of his fellow Jews says to him, who set you up? And Moses collapses. Why? He had. The Lord had not called him. And when his real call comes, you can see that the man who thought he was somebody had become the man who thought he was nobody. The passing of the years. Forty years on. Anyone can be idealistic when they're in their 20s. A friend of mine calls going through the valley of diapers. You can see all sorts of things that come in life, and that passion and idealism we have in our twin it disappears. Well, this is 40 years on now, and he's 80. But not only that, his position as a shepherd. The prince of Egypt is now a shepherd in the backside of the desert, and the last thing he wants to do is to go back to that dangerous place and set out on an impossible task of leading his people out of slavery. And that's when the Lord calls him. And Moses 
ducks and weaves and bobs and tries to escape. And finally, the Lord says, you, Moses, and gets angry with him for all his evasions. And in this passage, if you follow the whole, you can see not that the Lord ducks and weaves, but the Lord almost invites him to challenge him. And Moses is led deeper and deeper and deeper as he demands of the Lord and challenges the Lord of what cannot be. And we actually have the verse here, which theologians have argued about for years. The Lord changed his mind. But I think there's a third way in that maybe is the deepest of all. You can see in this prayer what it is that Moses trusts in his supreme crisis. When anyone as a leader is in a crisis, at whatever level the leadership is, there are always two questions that in some form bubble up in their minds. Is it worth it? And what will it take to see me through? Is it worth it? Some crises just ask us to put our shirts on the table, as it were. Some crises ask us to put our very lives and character and reputation on the line. And if a leader decides it is worth it, in other words, there are what we call today opportunity costs, things that leaders could be doing if they weren't doing this thankless, impossible-looking task, then the question is, what will it take to see me through? Maybe just to get through and survive, but maybe, more importantly, to get through and prevail and really prove victorious over whatever the crisis was. And you can see here that as the Lord says to him, I will blot out the people, Moses knows that the only answer for him is to, that he needs to know everything of the Lord that a fallen human being can experience and truly know and still live. Because we know right through the Scriptures, we're told nobody sees the Lord and still lives. Now, he's in an appalling crisis. Here he is, put this in American terms. The revolution has won, and the revolution is being ordered, the Constitution following the revolution. But for these Israelites, they got out of Egypt in that incredible way, and here they are at Mount Sinai being given the law, the way of life by which they're to live, the equivalent of the Constitution. But having not even started out in a real sense to the Promised Land, they're falling apart and falling away. And you can see what they're doing here first is rank paganism. Moses doesn't appear, and you remember they come to his brother Aaron and say, make us a god. And Aaron challenges them to take their gold and throw it in the fire, and he says, out came this golden calf. This is rank paganism. The Lord had revealed himself as Yahweh as we were singing. All the pagan gods were really personifications of the cosmos in one form or another, nature, fertility, and all sorts of things like that. But the Lord, Yahweh, is other. He is the only one. He is other than all the forces of the world. And here, so soon, they're reverting to that paganism. But not only for that, 
For Moses, it was gross family treachery. Who's leading this rebellion? His own brother. And what pathetic excuses. We put it in the fire, out came this. Come on. What a pathetic excuse. But worst of all, the folly, the rebellion, had left them totally vulnerable. Not just vulnerable to their enemies. Here it's the Lord who says, these people are obstinate, and I will destroy them and start again with you. An appalling crisis so soon in their national history. And Moses knows it can't be. He identifies with his people, and he's intimate with the Lord, and he knows it cannot be. So what's his response? First, and again I try to say it reverently, he puts the Lord on the line. If you read the passages carefully, he makes three arguments to the Lord as to why this cannot be. First, he says, you chose them. These are your people that you chose and you rescued. These are your people. But then he says, your reputation's at stake. What will the pagans say? He did this incredible thing getting them out of Egypt, but he couldn't get there. They were a rabble. What a hopeless lot. And he lost them, having got them out. What will the pagans say about you? But then he gets to the heart of the argument. He says, your character and your covenant are at stake. You gave your word to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You can't destroy them. Your word, your very character is at stake. The moral universe will collapse if this happens. He puts the Lord on the line, and the Lord says, all right, we will go forward. And that's where it says he changed his mind, whatever that quite means. But that's not the end of it. Moses goes back down the camp, and you remember in his anger, he smashes the Ten Commandments, which the very finger of the Lord had written. And he goes into the camp with all the revelry and the paganism around him, and he says, who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites come out. And he tells them, and we read this soberly, to go through the camp and kill all those who were rebelling against the Lord. Apostasy is no light thing in the Scriptures. And when they come back and we read that 3,000 had died that day, Moses says, by doing this, you show that you've consecrated yourself to the Lord. But even that's not the end of it. And the third thing is he puts himself on the line. He goes back up to the Lord and he says, now, Lord, forgive them. We're not just going forward, as you said. Forgive them. Blot out everything they've done wrong. Forgive them. And if you won't, blot out me. Now, we read that casually. But remember, in the course of his life, what Moses had seen, the Egyptian charioteers drowned. Korah, an earlier rebellion, the ground swallowing up. His own sister at one time, breaking out in leprosy as she was complaining about him to the Lord. And it goes on and on. So when he says, Lord, if you won't forgive them, blot out me, no idle words. And the Lord says, all right. I'll forgive them. But then the next challenge comes. The Lord says, I will forgive them. We will go forward, but I will not be the presence in the camp 
because of my burning holiness and their rebelliousness, I'll burn them up. I'll send an angel. And Moses says, no, Lord. We want you in person, not by proxy. And he makes arguments there too. Only by your presence with us do people around us know that you're our God. And he says, teach us to know you that we may know your way. The point is not just to get to the promised land, but to come to know you, the Lord and God of our people. And the Lord says, all right, I'll come with you with my presence, not just through an angel. And that, probably where many of us would stop. I mean, having argued with the Lord all that way, many of us would probably stop. Moses doesn't. And that's the setting where he prays this final prayer, Lord, show me your glory. He wants to know everything that a fallen human being can experience of the Lord and still live. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. We do know that the word glory in Hebrew is quite different from the words, say, among the Greeks and the Romans and modern English and Americans. If you go back to the Greeks and the Romans from where we get our idea of glory, glory is renown. It is reputation. A great admiral like Themistocles, a great playwright like Sophocles, a great scientist, and so on and so on, they have glory. They've achieved reputation. They've achieved renown. But it's external, and it fades. As the Greeks said, so long, people have glory, so long as the bard still sings and the child remembers. But there will come a day when the bard forgets and the child hasn't a clue who that was. So you think of our Hall of Famers, MVPs, and all that sort of thing today. You know the current ones, but can you tell me the ones in the 30s and 40s? Some of you are sports aficionados. I'm sure you can all the way through. But most people can't because time passes and we forget, and glory fades. That's the Greek, the Roman, and the modern English-speaking view of glory, but that's not the biblical view. In the Bible, glory is not external. It is that too. There's a brilliance. But glory at its heart is internal. And the Hebrew meaning of the word glory is rooted in the word weight, like pounds, tons, and so on, weight. And the idea is that at the heart of everything, since our Lord Yahweh is He who is, nothing behind Him. For the Greeks, their gods, Apollo and all the rest of them, they had fortuna behind them, arete. Nothing behind our Lord. He is the one who simply is. He who is. So he has reality. He has weightiness. And nothing else has any reality except derived and created by him. But here's the point. When our derived reality, we're made in his image, we live our lives, four score years and ten or whatever, three score years and ten or whatever. But you can see the further we get from the Lord, the more we lose that weightiness and reality. So you remember the time under Eli, 
when they leave the Lord wholesale, but they still think they can manage and fight their enemies without the Lord. And when they're going to fight the Philistines, they, they know they're not close to the Lord. They can't quite call on Him as they used to. So what do they do? They bring the ark. The ark could do it. They'd have the presence of the Lord in the ark. And of course, they're roundly defeated and the ark is taken. But the cry comes back to those in the homeland, Ichabod, Ichabod. And you know what that means in Hebrew? The glory's gone. They'd left the Lord and the glory was gone. You have the same idea at Belshazzar's feast. The hand that's writing on the wall and Belshazzar is terrified, weighed in the balances and found wanting, light as air, weightless. His empire had had its day, and now its day was over, and it was gone with the wind. And you know that phrase doesn't come from an American novel back before World War II. It comes from Isaiah and the prophets gone with the wind. Whenever we abandon the Lord, we become weightless and nothing is left. But on the other hand, when we return to the Lord, and you can see this in Isaiah 2, then there's a restoration of glory, of weightiness, of reality, and the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters fill the sea. A very different view. So Moses is saying, show me your glory. He wants the deepest reality of God that it's possible to have. What does that mean for us now? We need, at this crunch time, to know the Lord in reality like that. Relationship, intimacy, in depth should be the heart of our faith. And we know that we will never be among those who fall away for the trivial reasons. But we also need it for our culture, a reformation, a revival, a return to the reality of the Lord. Yes, we must do all sorts of things like political engagement. They by themselves will mean nothing. And America too one day will be gone with the wind unless there's a return to the reality of our Lord. God be with you. And may this be a place where that reality is strong.